Many of us may look back at our lives, at least those of us who are older, and recognize that the successes that we have and we currently enjoy in life are often attributed to the help of another or of others. In other words, where we have arrived, we hardly have done so on our own. If you look back to your earliest years, you will find that there were teachers along the way who spent time with you to explain concepts and ideas that were difficult. There were those who believed in you and took of their time and of their energy. And because of their work, you have enjoyed successes that you ordinarily would not have done apart from their effort. You look at the parents that you have had, guardians who have sacrificed, many of whom did not take trips that they longed for. Some of them wanted to tour Jerusalem or tour Israel, go on a Christian tour, but they had to pay for our education. And so many of these things were put on the back burner and some of them never were ever brought on the front burner because of the money spent on our education. Much of what we have, we have received by the sacrifice of others. And it is therefore appropriate that we are grateful. And while we are grateful for the sacrifices of others, we must be doubly grateful, infinitely grateful for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. A sacrifice that transcends all the sacrifices that have been made in this life. And Hebrews chapter 9 rarely captures this idea of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. For our reflection this evening, I merely want to point you to the 26th verse of Hebrews 9, in which the writer speaks of the sacrifice of the Lord. He writes, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This verse in which the writer reminds us of the sacrifice of the Lord occurs in a pastoral tract because the book of Hebrews is a letter from a pastor to his congregation, to his people. It was written approximately in A.D. 67, some 30 years after the Pentecost event. It addresses Jewish Christians who were attracted by the religious ways of Judaism. Many of them had come out of Judaism, but they found the charm of the temple, the, pomp, the ritual pomp of the priesthood, and the daily sacrifices difficult to abandon. And so the writer of Hebrews sets out to compare all that they possessed once in Judaism with what they now possess in Christ. And he concludes that the blessings that they have in Christ far exceeds everything that they ever possessed in Judaism. One of the fascinations of this group was with the pageantry 
of the priesthood. And so in the central section of Hebrews, that is running from chapter 8 to chapter 10, verse 18, he deals with the Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest. And he clarifies that Jesus, as the great high priest, ministers in the true tabernacle. Whereas the Levitical priest, the Aaronic priesthood, served in the copy and in the shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. What, what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ is a far greater priest, high priest, than any of the Aaronic priests, because while they were ministering in an earthly tabernacle, Jesus ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, he is in the right place to be of assistance to his people. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, he opens with a description of the furnishings of the old tabernacle in which the Aaronic priest served and its inadequacy in terms of its sacrifices. And he sums up the inferiority of the old covenant sacrificial system, emphasizing their temporary outward and ceremonial nature. In other words, what he's simply saying, not, not only was the Old Testament tabernacle inferior in its divine, in, in, in its design and function, but it was inferior in that it could not bring about inward purification. That's what the point he makes in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 9. Over then, against the deficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system, in verses 11 to 14, the writer paints the effective once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he asserts that Jesus Christ has entered into the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood once for all. And he spells out the, con the consequence of Christ's sacrifice of believer, contrasting it to those of the Levitical system in verses 13 to 14. While the blood of the sacrificial animals under the old covenant had some benefit that it, that it, in that it sanctifies the sinner ceremonially so that, the so that the believer in the old covenant, the one who trusted in God, when he sinned and he offered sacrifice, he was cleansed outwardly. That is, he could draw near and worship God ritually, ceremonially. That's all he did. But the sacrifice of Jesus, he makes clear, cleanses our consciences from dead works to serve the living God in verse 14. The outward, the Old Testament sacrificial system only made one fit to approach God in worship. But the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us inwardly even to the conscience. There is a forgiveness of sins. And then in verses 15 to 22, still pursuing the theme of Christ's superiority to the, the priests of the Old Covenant, he makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Testament uh, priesthood because he is the mediator of a new covenant. And that's what he points out in verses 15 to 19. That while Moses inaugurated the Old Covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai and ratified it by the sprinkling of blood, Upon the people, our Lord Jesus Christ, by his own blood, mediates a new covenant. He ratifies it by his efficacious blood. 
And so those who entered this new covenant ratified by the blood of Christ receive the promise of eternal life. And he makes it clear that where there is a will and testament, it requires the death of the testator for it to come into effect. Our Lord Jesus Christ therefore died, and by his death this new covenant, a new covenant in which our sins are forgiven, has been brought into effect. In verses 23 to 28, he states further that the sacrifices of the Old Testament, these which produce external cleansing, were able to do that and no more. The Levitical, the Levitical priests repeatedly offered sacrifices for sins. They did so during the year, and they did so again on the Day of Atonement. There was this repetition of sacrifices. And you know that the Old Testament Levitical system, that the Aaronic priest and their sacrifices could not remove sin because when a man sinned, he would bring his offering to the temple, he would kill the animal, blood would be shed, and he would be free then to come back into worship. But you know that it, de it, did, not, it did not remove sin definitively because at the end of the year, the high priest would have to go into the most holy place and offer up again another sacrifice for the same sins that the man had committed throughout the year and had offered sacrifice earlier for. It was this continual, this repetition in terms of offerings. But Jesus, but Jesus did not continue to repeat sacrifices for sins. But the writer makes it clear that he offered one sacrifice for sin. If he were to offer sacrifices for sin, then he said he would have had to suffer from the foundation of the world. You see that in verse 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Why? Because mankind has been sinning from the world has been created. But he says, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to bear in mind that when he refers to the sacrifice of the Lord, he is not referring to the fact that Christ denied himself some privilege. That Christ suffered some austerity for us. But when he refers to the sacrifice of Christ, he is picturing, he is evoking the image of the Old Testament blood sacrifice where the lamb was slaughtered, its throat was cut, and blood gushed forth. It is a sacrifice of this nature, a blood sacrifice that is now brought to us as the effective and atoning sacrifice. Now as I look at verse 26, I want to make a few remarks regarding the nature of Christ's sacrifice as we can deduce from the verse. First of all, Christ's sacrifice was the decisive act of a life of self-giving. Christ's sacrifice was the decisive act of a life of self-giving. He says, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For the apostle, the ages, the end of the ages, have now arrived in the coming of Christ. That these are the last days. And what is he saying? Once at the end of the ages, in these last days, inaugurated by Christ, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ appeared 
at the end of the ages, wants at the end of the ages to put away sin. But we need to recognize that, the, that, that this sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ was the climactic act in a life of perpetual sacrifice. What, we, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that when we think of the cross, we ought to recognize the cross as the climactic act of Christ's sacrifice or sacrificial life for us. That his entire life was sacrifice. The very fact that he was God before the creation and that he came into the world, took flesh, humbled himself, that in the incarnation, what I'm arguing is that the very incarnation itself was an act of sacrifice on the part of Christ. Because he put aside the glory and the splendor of heaven to come and to dwell amongst men. That he came into the world, a world at war with him, a world in rebellion. He embraced a life of poverty. Birds of the air, they have nests. Foxes have their dens. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived in sacrifice. I would suggest to you that as he dealt with his critics, as he listened to them, as they came up against him, as they spoke evil against him, that he who is creator of the universe, to, to bear with them, lived in sacrifice. Sacrifice marked the entirety of his life. But here we see the climactic act. He says there, but now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The cross, therefore, represents the greatest point of his self-giving and sacrifice. It's the culminating act in a life of obedience to God. It is the greatest act of obedience and sacrifice. And the writer underscores the climactic or the decisive nature of his sacrifice when he says regarding our Lord Jesus Christ he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself but he says but once but now once at the end of the age that this sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ is a once for all sacrifice it's decisive it's climactic and there is this emphasis in these passages here in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 on the once for all nature of Christ's sacrifice. You go back up to verse, verse 12 in this passage in chapter 9. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Our Lord Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice. This point is reiterated. In verse 28 of chapter 9, he says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. You skip over to chapter, chapter 10, verses 12 and 14, which was read for us earlier. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, 
He has perfected forever. That is, he has saved forever those who are being sanctified. You see, our Lord Jesus offered this decisive once-for-all sacrifice because it was all that was needed. There is therefore an intimation of the power of his sacrifice. It is precisely because his sacrifice was powerful that it was therefore effective once and for all. We see then the decisive sacrifice. So the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was a decisive act of self-giving. But it ought to be borne in mind, secondly, that the sacrifice of Christ was not only a decisive act of self-giving, it was also an elective act of self-giving. And by elective, I am arguing then that the death of Jesus Christ, the giving of Christ for himself, of himself, was a voluntary act. It was an elective act in that he chose to die. We do agree that he was sent into the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, or he gave his only begotten son. He is the sent one, and we, talk about, we can talk therefore about the sentness of Christ. But we must recognize that it was not merely that Christ was sent, but that he came. That he volunteered. This, this sacrifice of Christ was an elective act. In other words, he chose this mission. He knew what he was getting into. He didn't arrive here and then found out, you know what, I, I think I signed up for more than I bargained for. He knew before he came into the world that this was going to lead to his death. He knew that he was going to be abandoned on the cross. He knew the sufferings. That is, for, that is precisely the reason when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he was so grieved. Because he understood what the cross meant. But this was an act of sacrifice. It was not only a decisive act of self-giving, it was an elective act of self-giving. You see that because in verse 26 he says, but now once at the end of the age, he has appeared. He has been manifested, but he manifested himself. He came. He came to take upon himself sin. And I would want to suggest to you that this sacrifice as an elective act is rooted, first of all, in his love for his father. For this was the only way we, we get ourselves tied up into knots in systematic theology talking about the necessity of the cross. And the hypothetical necessity of the cross. In other words, could God have found another way to save mankind? And if he could have, then he would have. I would argue that this is the only way by which he could justly forgive our sins by himself taking our sins. It is because of the love of Christ for his father that he undertook this task. But it is also because of his love for us. That he gave his life. He could say, I, I have power over my own life to lay it down and to take it up. He gave up his life and he took it again. No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This was an elective act. Christ volunteered. We often feel that God is distant. 
And we do not always feel the closeness of God. We do not always feel the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let us be very clear that this sacrificial death of Jesus Christ was a volunteer mission, one he undertook upon himself, willingly and gladly, because of his love for God and because of his great love for his people. But my friends, this sacrifice of our Lord was not only a decisive, climactic act of self-giving, neither was it merely an elective act of self-giving, but this sacrifice of Christ was a purposive act of self-giving. A purposive act. That is, there was an intent and design behind this giving. Again, let us turn to the verse. In particularly part B of the verse, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin. That is, the sacrifice of Christ was not only elective, he took it on himself, it was purposive because he appeared to put away sin. And the purpose there is related to sin. That Christ came into the world for a purpose. That purpose was to deal with our sins. Now, we read in Hebrews 2.14 and 15 that our Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his coming to the world was not merely related to forgiving our sins but to liberating us from the power of Satan. You, you, you can only read in, in Hebrews 2.14 and 15 and the writer says, In so much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage, so that the, the Lord came into the world to deliver us from the clutches, from the tyranny, from the bondage to Satan. But he also came to deliver us not only from Satan, but from sin. And so we read, therefore, in all these things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.17. The writer, therefore, expresses the purposive nature of Christ's sacrifice. He came to bear the sin of many. In chapter 9, verse 28, you see this emphasis that the purposive nature of Christ's death. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And in this sense, this matter of bearing sin is of course an allusion to the great evangelical passage there in Isaiah 53. Where in Isaiah 53 we, we read of Christ as the one bearing our sins. Lifting up our sins where the term Nassar means to lift up and to take away. He came into the world to bear away our sins, to take them away. That idea is found in 1 Peter 2 and 24. But here in our passage, he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ appeared to put away sin. It doesn't say to bear sin, that is to carry it away but to put away. And, 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 and I understand that these, these, these ideas 
are overlapping that you really can't make a, a, a too rigid distinction between bearing away sin and putting away sin, but they're two different words used, two different concepts used. The concept that he uses here in verse 26, where he says that Christ came and appeared to put away sin, is a very strong verb. It's the verb that is used for the cancellation of a debt. And here, he's actually saying Christ came to cancel our sin. It is a legal term. It is the word, the same term that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. It is used in 1 Samuel 24 verse 11, where, I don't know if you can spot it, this word in this sentence, but at least you could try. It says, David now is talking to Saul. Saul had been pursuing him. And we read, David says, Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. No one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Well, what's the word cancel? Where is it in that sentence? Well, it's there, translated by the New King James as cut off. He cut off a part of Saul's robe. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ came to do. He came to cut us off from our sins. To cancel them. To remove them. He came to make our sins invalid. The same language is used in chapter 7 verse 18 regarding the old covenant and the law. Where we are told there, for on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. God removed or canceled the old covenant. We're no longer under the old covenant. It no longer accuses us or, or in, condemns us. Our Lord Jesus Christ has nullified it by obeying his commands. But now our Lord has come and he has canceled. He has come. His death is purposive because it is to cancel our sins. And the way he cancels our sins is that he has obeyed the law fully. I do not want to go over the point I made this morning, but I, I just want to bring it up again. I won't, I won't go down this road too far, but I think you need to recognize that the obedience of Christ to the Lord is a saving act. We are saved by Christ's life. We are saved by his righteousness and we are saved by his death. That the way Christ cancels our sins is by first of all obeying all of the law. And secondly by taking the punishment of the law upon himself. His death, his sacrifice is purposive. It had an intention. It was there to blot out, to cancel, to remove our sins from the sight of God. And it is precisely because he did so. But we are able to say there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. What is so brilliant is that the, the Greek uses the word sin. And doesn't refer to sins as in the plural. He appeared to put away sin. Because he's looking at sin as a body. Not just specific sin but sin as a whole. And that's great. 
Because you need to remember that under the old covenant, there were only particular sins that could be forgiven. Sins of inadvertence. Sins that you, you committed but without an intention. Somebody comes up to you and says, are you John Brown? And you are afraid. You say, no, I am not, but you are John Brown. Well, you didn't plan to say no before. That's a sin of inadvertence. You're caught. And the wrong thing comes out. Those sins could be forgiven. But deliberate sins, sins like murder and adultery, these were called no-hope sins. No-hope sins meant that there was no forgiveness for them. But Christ has appeared at the end of the ages once to put away sin. Sin. It refers to all sins. The ones that we think are mountainous and those that we think are picadellas. The ones that we think will sink us and the ones we think God don't see. He has come to put away all sin. It really doesn't matter how bad you have become. It really doesn't matter how deep you have fallen into sin. I, I meet people who tell me I've done too many things for God to Forgive me. But I, I like to remind them that Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. You can't have two chiefs. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. And, and, and all I'm simply saying to you is that regardless of how sinful you have been, if God had mercy upon Saul, I guess he will have mercy upon you. You can't be too sinful for God's mercy. He appeared once at the end of the ages. To put away sin. To cancel sin. His, his sacrifice is therefore purposive. But, but fourthly, the sacrifice of Christ was not only per, a purposive act of self-giving, it was an expensive act of self-giving. Sacrifice by its very nature. Sacrifice inherently is costly. When we use the word sacrifice, we generally do so with uh, the notion that something costs us. We won't talk about something as a sacrifice for us if it doesn't cost. And he says, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the language of the temple. This is the language of the shedding of blood. And so by nature, sacrifice is expensive. But the, the writer says that Christ appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He came to atone for our sins. And that he did not offer to God the blood of animals. He did not bring the best of his lamb or the best of bulls. But he offered to God himself. And therefore Christ is unique both as priest and victim. That is the sacrifice that he's offering to God to remove our sins is himself. A perfect life. A soul given up unto death. He assumed our guilt. He brought them up to the cross. He presented himself 
as a lamb unto God for our sins. He offered himself. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices could not accomplish. Because the life of the animal was taken, but it was never given. But our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, offered himself for our sins. He is therefore our sacrifice. Paul could say, therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We need to realize that Christ as a sacrifice. His sacrifice was powerful, for he offered himself once. But his sacrifice was at a price, because he offered himself. You and I need to remember as we draw near to the Lord's table that Christ died for us. That he offered himself not for his sins, for he had no sins. He offered himself for us and therefore he was a vicarious sacrifice acting on our behalf. He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yes, we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. When we think of the cross. We must, we must think of it. That Christ was giving himself for us. It never and it ought never to cease to fascinate us. For the more we come to know ourselves. The more wretched we realize we are. And yet the Lord Jesus for us was willing to give his life. To pay the ultimate price. To die for our sins. And this sacrifice was powerful. For he offered himself once. Because once was sufficient. He, the perfect Lamb of God, was acceptable to the Father. You and I must realize that because Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, we must therefore give ourselves as a sacrifice to him. You will note in Romans chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your reasonable service. The reason the Apostle Paul can tell the Romans that they must give themselves to God as a sacrifice, it is behind that he recognizes that Christ has given himself as a sacrifice for them. In other words, the basis of our self-giving to God is Christ's self-giving for us. It is because the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself to cleanse us from our sins, to save us from judgment and from hell. And I'm talking about condemning judgment. We ought to give ourselves to God. Yes, our self-giving to God is not salvific. We're not going to give ourselves to God expecting that we can save ourselves. But we are giving ourselves to God as our reasonable service. As what is acceptable unto God. We are offering up our bodies and our minds, our entire being, to the glory and to the praise of God. Christ has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ has appeared. Interesting language. 
4, the writer says that Christ appeared on earth to put away sin. In verse 24 of Hebrews 9, he says, Christ appeared in the presence of God in heaven for us. He appeared on earth to put away sin. He appears in heaven for us. And then, in the last verse of chapter 9, he says, Christ will appear again. Know that this Christ, who appeared to put away sin, who appeared on earth to put away our sins, has now appeared in heaven for us. And he's there to intercede, to, to claim the full benefit that he achieved on our behalf. He's there in heaven to intercede for us, to grant us the grace and the help that we need. But this Christ who appeared on earth for our sins and appeared in heaven to intercede for us is going to appear again another time to receive us unto himself. Christ offered himself as that decisive sacrifice. He offered himself to God as that willing, deliberate sacrifice. A sacrifice that was intended to deal with our sins. A sacrifice that was pricely at a high cost. May God help us to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to consider that there is nothing that we possess too great to give up for him. He gave himself as a sacrifice for us. May we give ourselves sacrificially unto him for his glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows.